Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast. For this episode, we're joined by Stefano Lorini, the co-founder and CEO of Lupa. Stefano, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you, and uh, nice to meet you, Rian, and uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you. Pleasure to have you. Three main focus areas over the next 30, 35 minutes. Early influences, challenges, pivotal moments. I did a little bit of research, and what I know is that you were born in northern Italy, if I'm correct. Yes. So I'd like you to start there. Talk to me about any standout memories from your early years growing up. I know you're in Austria at the moment. I don't know if you spent more time in Austria or Italy, but what was your childhood like? Um, it was great, actually. Northern Italy is a great place to, to be born and to grow up. I lived there until I was about 19. And... Uh, I was, yeah, I was born next to the Lake Garda, which is, uh, yeah, it's a beautiful uh, lake mm. in Europe, one of, one of the largest. And uh, so honestly, surrounded by nature from, you know, from my parents' balcony, I, it's something that I treasure a lot. Um, you have these beautiful um, fields and then you see the Alps starting. So you have all the Alps in the, if you look on the north side and you have the Italian flat when you look at the south. So it's, it's beautiful. So yeah, good memories, growing up, doing a lot of sports, uh, being outdoors and uh, yeah, traveling around with, with my family. Nice, nice. Before we move on to business and other things, um, one of the questions I like to ask my guests is around impact slash influences. What I mean by that is usually there's someone or individuals that they can point to, friends, teachers, parents, close relatives, that they believe had a big influence or impact on the person they've turned to be today. Does anyone spring to mind for you in terms of a big impact or influence on who you've turned out to be? I mean, I can definitely think about a few people or not just necessarily individuals, but I will also say group of people actually. And um, when I say that is, I think about again, sports, I think about, mm my coach or, or my teammates. So I, I played water polo, um, well, professionally for a number of years. I started swimming when I was five and then water polo when I was eight. And I played that for 13 years. So uh, certain, certain coaches or team dynamics definitely left, left a, a mark. Um, Teachers, high school, high school, the combination of water polo and, uh, and high school. I, I attended um, like a scientific high school in Italy, mm. which is the one that prepares you for university. So I was playing sport at high level. I was trying to study at high level, which was probably one of the earliest, biggest challenges for me. You know, I had my teammates, my, my schoolmates that were studying all day and I was training all day. So I didn't have much, much time for that. So everyone was kind of asking questions from all sides, you know, like, that's cool. Like, hey, why are you not studying at, you know, in the team? Like, hey, why did you skip training? And at home, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> but 
but I definitely remember that the, the, the group of teachers really, despite they were always tough, they really understood and they were trying to, to support me in, in going through it all. You studied science at university. I know from your LinkedIn, you went to Amsterdam University, uh, did a Bachelor of Science in Liberal Arts and Sciences, and then King's College in London, a Master of Science in Theoretical Physics. Where did the interest in science come from? Well, talking about influences again, that, that actually reminds me again of a, of a school teacher in middle school. And I actually remember some of Osman's extremely well. I think I was about 11 or 12 and uh, sitting in the, in the classroom in the afternoon, probably like springtime. And for the first time I felt, wow, I'm actually, I'm hearing and they're teaching me something so fascinating. And it was about genetics. Mm -hmm. It was about Mendel. And you know, the first things that they teach about how chromosomes and things like that work. Mm -hmm. And I was very, very fascinated and I just was keep on asking questions. And then I, when school ended that day, I just went to the library, which was like 500 meters from the school to, to pick up some books about it. And I remember that I couldn't understand anything because it was, you know, written in very old school Italian and it was highly scientific and I was 12. So I have no idea what I was, you know, it took me like hours to read one page. Um, but that's that's how it started. I realized, okay, I'm actually deeply fascinated by how things work. Interesting, interesting. Um, you started this thing called Sports and Souls. Uh, for our listeners, it's uh, an endurance <laughs> sport project. Uh, I don't know if you're still doing it, but it was focused on ultra cycling um, and, and basically challenges. To give listeners a taste, in 2016, it was a... 1,100 kilometer cycle from London to the top of Scotland, the Isle of Skye. And in 2012, there was a 1,355 kilometer cycle from Amsterdam to Lake Garda, which you referenced earlier on. Um, two questions. One, why did you start that? And two, did you learn anything from, you know, you led a team of people, you took care of sponsorship, negotiations, the whole strategy of the entire thing, any takeaway lessons from it? Yeah, it's funny that you that you mentioned that it's yeah it's not something that I recall very often, but I think that was the first uh, attempt, trial, experience, and uh, wave within me of combining various elements that I am and that I wanted to bring together in my life, mm. which are and where sport. Um, entrepreneurship and uh, and technology science okay. but I was very young and very inexperienced then I just <laughs> I finished I think that was just after my master degree in London mm. and uh, and I didn't know what to do I felt the urge to go back to professional sport because you know I had left water polo to actually study despite I had a professional contract. And uh, I, so I missed sport, but I also was thinking to continue studying and do a PhD in philosophy of physics or uh, continue uh, working in startups, which I did between my bachelor and master degree in Amsterdam. 
So I have these three worlds that were gravitating around me and I found them equally appealing and interesting. And so I decided to, I don't know, I went back to my parents' house in, in Northern Italy for a few months and I just started cycling every day. And, um, you know, it was not like a conscious choice. I just, just did it. You know, sometimes you choose things not with your brain, but with your, you know, with your body, with your actions. Mm. And that's what I did. And things developed from there quite, quite, they were not very thought through at that moment. They just kind of mature step by step. And I realized, you know what, actually, well, again, back to influences, I had the privilege to meet uh, a person who is a world record holder and uh, is a multidisciplinary athlete called Nico Valsesia. And he has done craziest sport projects and uh, is an amazing human being and uh, definitely source of inspiration and uh, so I had I had you know him as a reference and uh, he was doing very long distance cycling projects and I started cycling and kept going at, until some point I thought you know maybe I can do these projects and sell them as a content platform of some sort where we really show the journey that a person goes through from a physical point of view, the mental point of view and the preparation behind it, but not from the point of view of, Hey, I'm a super athlete. Look how cool I am. I'm doing all this shit, but Hey, I'm a normal person that has a dream and a desire and a will to achieve something, follow the journey because then it's relatable because, you know, the message wanted to be, if I can do it, anyone can do it. And I can show you how and why to kill and you know reduce the barrier between elite athletes and normal people, right? Through yeah, that that's that was the initial idea. But um, yeah, so I did a few projects, but you know it didn't it didn't go far. And uh, I yeah, that that it's still, that was about it's, still, it's still great what you did. It, it's it's. Uh... It's epic. It's very cool, man. Um, I've done a few similar projects myself, and you learn a lot from just doing that um, about yourself. Um, heavily involved in startups, you are. Three uh, things I want to point out. First up, startup mentor at the Royal Academy of Engineering. You've previously been these uh, program coordinator for Google, uh, uh, Startups UK, and a startups mentor at the Accelerator Network. So there's this book that I reference every now and again, it's called the uh, leadership blind spot. So it's 13 blind spots that can hold back an otherwise healthy business. My question to you is, and there are things like um, not focusing on hiring or lead generation or onboarding. Um, when it comes to an early stage startup, are there common blind spots that you see early stage startups, walls that they run into that, with the help of these programs can help them avoid running into these walls? And if so, what are they? It's a really big question. Um, yeah, there are definitely a number of things that I've observed. And for, first of all, you know, and this comes, this is, I think, true for all of these type of programs. You know, many times I've been asked or I ask myself, you know, what's the recipe? How do you do this? 
you know, mm-hmm. we are all kind of obsessed with trying to replicate someone else's success within entrepreneurship. And that's also why a lot of these programs exist, right? That, you know, you try to create, to extract a model of success, but you're trying to extract the model of success from something that is intrinsically, you know, you're paving a new way every time. Every product is unique. Every circumstances in time are unique. Every team is unique. Every person is unique. It's, it's very, very hard to do. So I'm not saying that it's not possible. I'm just saying that it's very, very hard. And so all of these things should always be taken uh, with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. But I've definitely noticed some trends in working with other entrepreneurs and then being one myself. First of all, I think that something that I self-reflected on is this: when I started Lupa and I decided to leave a very comfortable job at Google, where essentially I was helping others building their company, having zero risk on myself. You know, it felt like a, the Monopoly jail-free card. Um, I felt, I, I really believed that I was in a very privileged position where together with a few other people, I was the best prepared to embark myself in that journey because I felt I was already kind of doing it. And despite that, the real journey has been, I will, I'm not, in my experience, I'm not underestimating that, but 100x more challenging, more complicated, more nerve wracking and more rewarding than I could have ever anticipated, which means I was 100x more naive than I even thought. So this is something that I experienced myself and I exp- and I observed in, in other people. I think you need to be somewhat naive when you mm-hmm. want to start a business in tech, even more so if you want venture funding. Um, then I want to think about this a little more because it's a really interesting sure. question. So can you t- tell me again how you how you phrased it like blind spots blind spots yeah so this so, i mean what i said what i said now i mean i think it is a kind of a blind spot on yourself because i think yeah you need to be slightly naive to do it otherwise no no well i'm not saying no chances but you may think 100 times before doing it or doing it again um well, something else is it definitely is true in early stage. I mean, different skill set, different focuses are needed at different stages of a company in, in tech. So the weighting of what's important or what's more important or less important changes as the company matures. Mm-hmm. But again, something that I've well experienced before starting Lupa, but that I definitely uh, um, you know, sedimented within me is the importance of the team, the, the core initial team, the relationship between team members, the complementarity and the level of trust, the attitude, the mindset, that is truly one of the most important things ever. Of course, starting from the founders, but the ability to, well, as a, as a consequence, to hire people that they are not necessarily hiring for their skill set, 
but you're hiring them for their mentality, for their approach, for their desire to learn, for their way of taking feedback and criticism and their desire to always wanted to improve themselves. You need, you need people that are mature and round and balanced and hardworking and passionate. And it's really hard. It's really hard to find people with this deep and broad, you know, skill set before being a good engineer, before being a good designer, before being a good marketing person or anything else. And I mean, that is the strategy that we took at Lupa and, uh, and, uh, I think it's paid off very well so far because everything else you can teach. Those things you can't teach. Those things are something very personal. Of course, you can inform a culture and the larger the, the team becomes, the more everyone, you know, is it's what determines culture, right? So if you hire well at the beginning in terms of culture, in terms of attitude, in terms of respect and values, you know, you have much higher chances that the, that gets you know, uh, um, what's the English word that it gets uh, passed on as the team expands. It's not the easiest thing to get right though, hiring, and it can be a very costly mistake if you don't get it right. It's, uh, it's something that's come up quite recently, quite a lot recently on podcasts. Um, something else that's come up is around the word freedom. And, and this is what I mean by it. I've asked people, do they think being the founder, because I'm a founder of a company myself, gives you true freedom or the illusion of freedom? And what I mean by that is, as a founder, I've found that I've surrounded myself with other people who own businesses. And I've, I've noticed a couple of differences. And one between my friends who don't own businesses and do own businesses, the friends that own businesses are always on, always, whether we're gone out for a run, and they're thinking about a deal while they're running and it just comes to them. Sometimes it doesn't come to them, but then they're switched on or they're not working nine to five. Um, they could wake up in the middle of the night panicking or sweating because of the business and there's potential cash flow issues. So, and then when you go on holidays, a lot of the really ambitious founders, they're not taking the full two weeks off on holidays. They're working while they're on holidays. So my question is, do you think being the owner or founder of a business gives you the, true freedom or the illusion of freedom? I have no doubts in what my answer is and I'll try to explain why. <laughs> um, the answer is, it is true freedom. Okay. But with probably 10 asterisks <laughs> as a footnote. <laughs> and these are Again, it all goes back to you, your approach to life. You, you, you really need to, to zoom out a lot to, mm -hmm. to, to answer this question and understand your approach. So as far as I'm concerned, um, and I'm the first one that often forgets what I wish I was able to keep in mind every day is I'm one of us that believes that life is a game which doesn't mean it's not uh, to be taken seriously. That's absolutely not what I mean. What I mean that is a game is that we are given with this, well, most of us 
we're given with a beautiful set of initial possibilities and resources and time to do literally anything that we want. And it's even more true, I would say, for our generation, right? We can live anywhere we go. We can be in touch with anywhere we want. We can build companies with a phone. You know, like the, the possibilities are endless. Um, so it comes down to your approach and to your ability to, again, keep the balance between giving the right importance to the right things at the right time while retaining this zoomed out view on your self-life and what actually is ultimately more important. And this is actually a frustration that I feel myself in always, well, in, in getting this balance right every day, plus in the typical culture that there is in the tech industry, which I'm not a fan of, which is also why I spend most of my time in Austria and not in London, New York, Silicon Valley or else which is, I really believe that at the end of the day, the most important things are, you know, maybe a little bit uh, as a cliche, but it is true in my experience. It's love, friendships, people you have around, your health, and these kind of things. So, and also I don't believe that you need to work until four in the morning to build something of value, something big whatever you want to call it and also you don't need to be something big you need to do something that you know that satisfy you and then if it's big or not it's you know it's a consequence of the type of business that you're building the route that you choose if you take venture money or not and so forth but um yeah i think it's possible to find that balance and i this is also the message that i want to embody and give despite on the first one that fails at that almost constantly but i still try you can have that balance in your work and life even if you're building a business and i will say that if you're working 16 hours a day constantly you're doing something wrong you're not working smartly doesn't mean there will be days or weeks or months even though you're doing that i've definitely done that i'm definitely doing that but I do find time for my run. I do find time for my friends and so forth. Or at least I try my best and I make that a key objective. Um, yeah, and now I lost the thread of the question. That's a great message. No, no, it's a, <laughs> what you said was brilliant. And, and I'd like more people to say what you said because sometimes, especially depending on where you're located, um, the message said to people can be different. So it's nice to see that you said that. And that's, before I started this podcast, a lot of the media that I would see would be the success stories of the big companies in, whether they've moved from Tel Aviv to America or they're in London. And having started this podcast, you're probably episode number 110. And 90% of the entrepreneurs, founders, CEOs that I've had on um, are aligned with what you say. Uh, and you know time with friends is important to them um, they don't think that working 16 hours a day is, is smart either so um, it's been nice over the last five to six months to hear that message because prior to the podcast the message that you can hear depending on what the algorithm feeds you 
is uh, is the opposite. Um, is is there? A, we're coming towards the end of the podcast, but I have a few more questions. Is there a um, commonly held belief about your role as the CEO or founder uh, that you disagree with, and if so, why? Or what is it? Rian, sorry, I I wanted to add something again about sure, freedom, sure, please. the freedom thing, and I know they are like uh, dispersed thoughts, so it it will be a little bit harder for you to to add it, but uh, something that I wanted to add about that question is that what I what I what I'm trying to say is that whether uh, being a founder is the ultimate freedom or gives the illusion of freedom is basically up to you. That's what I was trying mm-hmm. to say. And the reason why it's up to you is because if you have this zoom out, if you're able to retain this zoom out approach, and you're able to say every day that because of the context in which you operate, you are the agent that ultimately decided where your freedom is, which I will say is factually true, but often very hard to exercise because we think, oh, I can't go out and do my run because I need to do X, Y, and Z. Oh, I cannot do this because otherwise we run out of money. Oh, I need to take this contract because otherwise X, Y, and Z. But that is still a choice that we have as individuals. And again, and it really helps me a lot to think that uh, we are in a privileged position to do something that that we love and uh, that we chose, that we chose and uh, and that is freedom. Um, and of course, like I think people maybe tend to implicitly uh, mistaken freedom with, or associate freedom with lack of responsibility or lack of uh, hard work or having an easy life. That, that's, not, that, that's not how freedom works. It's actually the exact opposite. And you don't, I mean, this is true at any scale in any context, right? That's how law and, and society works. My freedom as rules that I need to, you know, um, be subject to in order to guarantee your freedom, right? Mm-hmm. So there is an equal sign between freedom and responsibilities and sacrifices. And I think that's also a message that is often diluted and, and yeah, I don't know, I'm not going to say forgotten, but not as obvious. Well put, well put. Um, I feel like you've, you've somewhat answered the, the, the other question, which was around, is there a um, commonly held belief that you disagree with about your industry or your role? But have you got anything to add for that? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I did answer it with what I said about the mm. culture. Um, no, I nothing yeah. else to add. Two more questions for you. Um, you're big into mountain running. How did you get Sorry? the itch? For, you're big into mountain running? Right. How did you get the itch for that? What was it that had you become or fall in love with mountain running and are there any lessons that you can translate from mountain running to running a business? How much time do I have? <laughs> um, 
Yes. So mountain running, I actually something that I that I joke about is that I literally ran into running. And uh, and the story is is something that I remember with a lot of joy. Um, I was in Patagonia in South America. And uh, this was again after my master's degree where I was trying to understand what to do. Um, and I was traveling. I went there on my own, just traveling on the mountains. I started in Peru, in Lima, and I was literally going down all the way to Tierra del Fuego, which is the most southern place in the world, until I reached Patagonia. And uh, at that time, the person that I mentioned before, Nico Valsesia, he was attempting the world record also in South America, but northern up, of fast ascent of Aconcagua, which is the highest mountain in South America, which is 7,000 something meters, but starting from the closest sea level place, which is not in Argentina where the mountain is, is in Chile. So he started, um, I don't remember where, uh, I think in Valparaíso in Chile, and then he cycled like 200 plus kilometers, dropped the bike and start running up. And in the meantime, I was doing this excursion and I, you know, we were in this beautiful mountain hut, which is literally in the most remote place I've ever been in my life. First of all, Patagonia per se is one of the most remote places in the world. And we had to take buses and gasoline on the bus. I mean, on a mini, on a minivan that I was traveling with, with some climbers that I met because there was no gas station for two days and food to go to the next village. Once we got to that village, I met uh, um, a couple of other people and I went on this excursion with them where we took a car for another couple of days and then hiked for two, three days. So I, I really felt in the middle of nowhere. And I was there and I was thinking about Nico doing this thing and I thought, okay, I had to do something as well. And uh, from the terrace of this mountain hut, we had glaciers on left and right. It was summer, so the glaciers were melting. They were waterfall, like you know, the air with this, with the water coming mm. through, and a beautiful valley with the Andes at the end and the lake. And it was one of the most beautiful views I've ever seen. And I thought, okay, I want to go to this lake. And so I asked the people that were managing the hut, and they were like, no, you can't go. It's too far. There is no path. Um, you can't go. I was like, look, I, I want to go. Can you please help me out and tell me um, how I can do that? Mm -hmm. And after, after a, a number of, <laughs> you know, after negotiating with them, they told me, okay, you can go, but you need to be back before 10 p.m. Otherwise, we need to call the rescue team. And, you know, it's very expensive. We're in the middle of nowhere. So I was like, okay, no problem. So I just started. And when I started, like, it was a natural thinking process where I was like, okay, I need to go there and back as quickly as I can. How do I do that? I guess I need to start moving more quickly. And then I started running, literally. I was like, oh, well, I guess I can run there. And, and I did, <laughs> I managed to find the lake. It was not as easy because indeed there was no path, um, but, I went, I came back and it was one of the best experiences I ever had. And I was like, wow, this was great. And then when I came back to Europe, 
I realized that the place that I was born in Northern Italy has a huge movement around mountain running that I never came across. And that's how it started. Well, so my final question for you then is, I'd like you to imagine it's the year 2030 and you're looking back on the last decade. You can answer this personally, professionally, or both, but what would you like to be looking back on if you imagine that we're talking in the year 2030 and you're looking back? Sorry, what, what do you mean? What I would like to... What, so if now is the year 2030 and you're looking right. back on the last 10 years of your life, either your personal life or your business-like life, what would you hope that the last 10 years have looked like? I hope, well, many things. I hope that I will have been able to retain the values and beliefs that I have that I consider right in the way I want to be in the world mm. and in the way I want to be with and around other people. I will hope that the work that I do and that I, that I keep choosing to do is an enabler for my personal growth and for other people personal growth as well. I hope that that will always come back to having fun with the team, building something that other people find valuable, first of all, because everything else is a consequence of that. That should be the starting point. I hope that the balance that I seek, um, that I will make more and more progress is in that. And uh, yeah, that there will be a family in the picture as well. Nice. And that my desire for having new project all the time and uh, and growing them will not end. Hope I hope I hope all of that comes through, especially the desire to continue to move forward. Um, but for the time today, for the last forty minutes, uh, it's been a pleasure chatting to you, and I wish you all the best in the future, Stefano. Thanks for being my guest today. Thanks, Rian. Thank you for having me. If your metro don't trust you, I'm gonna shoot you. Beautiful morning, you're the sun of my morning, babe. Nothing in the